Ron Gonan is the founder and CEO of Closed Loop Partners, a New York-based investment firm that focuses on building a circular economy. In his fulfilling career, Ron has been recognized as the champion of Earth by the United Nations Environment Program, serving as the Deputy Commissioner of Sanitation, Recycling, and Sustainability in New York City under the Bloomberg administration. Ron Gonan is a visionary, and his idea of the circular economy is certainly the way of the future. Ron Gonan, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Today, your investment firm, Closed Loop Partners, is at the forefront of a new technological, creative, and collaborative revolution spurring innovation and driving change. Tell us about your journey to becoming the founder of CLP, and how did you recognize the need for Closed Loop? My journey started very young. I grew up with a single mom in Philadelphia, and when I was about 12 or 13, it became obvious I needed to get a job if I was going to have any spending money. And I was very fortunate that the job I got was working for a family where uh, I would do everything around their house from babysitting to mowing the lawn to fixing things. And the father was one of the first green architects in America. And so this was late 80s, early 90s. And so very early on, I got infused with the concepts and the brilliance around sustainable uh, design and, and production. And it became something that uh, was very obvious to me and very important. And then from there, in my late 20s, I uh, was back in business school and I started my first uh, company in the space, which is a recycling company called Recycle Bank. And uh, that was the next stepping stone. And then after that, I got the opportunity to come in and work for the Bloomberg administration's deputy commissioner for sanitation, recycling and sustainability, where I was responsible for reimagining and rebuilding New York City's recycling programs. And then as I was getting out of uh, the mayor's office, I had the idea for closing partners and was able to launch Closely Partners in 2014. But all of those experiences laid the foundation for me being able to launch the firm and, and really do what I do today. And it's wonderful because it's given all of this, these experiences, it seems to kind of unfold naturally for you. It's so wonderful that you had these early teachers. I believe your mother's also a teacher as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but each of these um, steps on your path have given you this whole global look of the circular economy. And, and what you do there is, is so interesting. Just to describe it for us who don't understand the circular economy, you know, what is your focus? Sure. The idea behind the circular economy is how to develop manufacturing systems so that we can get access to the products and the services that we want without a reliance on natural resource extraction for the materials for those products or disposal and landfill of those products when we're done using them. The circular economy focuses on manufacturing products and delivering services without a reliance on natural resource extraction or disposal and landfill. Right. And it's so important because as we are coming to realize, it's not always been something that we, we don't understand. One thing, we don't have a good uh, grounding in our education systems on the, um, the climate crisis, you know, climate literacy, and also just all of these, you know, supply chains and things. People just don't have that understanding. So we're really subsidizing economic models, the linear economic models that aren't really sustainable. Absolutely. What's interesting about the United States is that we market to ourselves and externally that 
we're the ideal example of capitalism where free markets decide who the winners are and, and who the losers are. But in fact, our economic history is one that's very different than that. Our economic history is one, especially in the last 75 years, where certain industries have gained enough political influence to be able to get access to a lot of taxpayer funding and subsidies that most taxpayers were not aware of. And that subsidy system propped up those businesses and provided tremendous profits for the management teams and the shareholders of those companies. But it was done to the detriment of our environment, um, our society, and effectively to the competitiveness of our economy. The best example of that is the fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry always represented itself as being as big as they are and as profitable as they are because they're just smart and hardworking and innovative. And if more sustainable products were cheaper or better, customers would be choosing them. That's the American way and that's the capitalist system. But if you look behind the curtain, you get a much different story, which is the fossil fuel industry was propped up by a lot of state and federal subsidies. And even if you look at the highways, which were required for cars that would use fossil fuels, that was taxed spare money built those roads. It wasn't the fossil fuel industry. So I think this is an opportunity to become much more honest about how our economy is developed, how it's structured, and what we want to aspire to be as a, as a modern economy. Exactly. And another thing, there's a lot of faulty thinking uh, with some of these models because you know, you're involved in something called impact investment. and But it, the impacts on society were not really thought through for most of these business models. Correct. We unfortunately allowed a system to develop where if a business did pollute or a business developed a lot of products that were not recyclable, that the cost of the environmental or health damage produced by that company or the cost of landfilling their products, no one ever codified who is responsible for that cost. And so ultimately, the cost was left to the taxpayer to be responsible for. And that's a broken system. We need a system in which the producer, the one that's selling the product, is responsible for building and investing in infrastructure that can get that material back into their supply chains and also ensure the protection of the environment that, that we all share in and, and own. And so it's it's so exciting. You're offering now with your investment firm opportunities for your investors, but also that just allows us all to, you know, live better, cleaner, more sustainable lives. And I found it so eye-opening, your book, The Waste-Free World, because it really goes into the whys and the hows and not just for investors, but consumers and how they can be all, all a part of this. That's what I was hoping to accomplish with The Waste-Free World. I'm glad you enjoyed it and got that out of it. I wanted to write a very readable, fun book to read that was also very informative in terms of the history of how manufacturing developed in the United States and why it developed that way and that it wasn't always in the best interest of us, the citizen. It was also oftentimes without our knowledge being designed to the best interest of certain industries, and that required our tax dollars subsidizing those industries without our knowledge. And so I wanted to make people aware of that in a fun and readable way, but also to kind of shock them into saying, well, that's not fair. That I didn't know that was going on with my dollars. How, how can I change that? How can we be better? And for the book to uh, provide those insights as well. 
And in the writing of the book, what are some, I mean, you've been so well grounded in this, but what are some things that you discovered? I, I think the thing that I discovered most was when you have a concept for a book and you have a good grounding in the history of the topic and a good handle on the innovation and the changes going on, writing a book really forces you to conf- how accurate your view of both the history and the innovation actually is. Because it's one thing to espouse something or to have conversations about something or even to run an investment firm about something. It takes a whole nother level of diligence and research to actually write a book to support it all and to make sure that it's accurate. So I learned a lot about myself and how to put in the research to make sure that what you're talking about can be backed up with with clear facts. Exactly, because it's a big concept people it's like daunting waste free world uh, i mean there's others who like focus on you know 100 renewable energy and i'm well i'm very hopeful and i hear i know like they kind of live the life and and you also you know walk the talk but it's it's hard for people to get their head around it and so i guess also what are some of the bottlenecks in towards uh reaching that waste-free world you know what and also how do you prioritize because there's so there's so much systemic change that needs to take place I think the thing that needs to be prioritized first is making sure that the average citizen is aware of the cost of waste. A lot of us think that waste is generated and then just thrown out and the city comes and picks it up and it just disappears. And that seems like a pretty good system. You can just buy as much as you want, throw out as much as you want, and someone just comes by and picks it up. In fact, a lot of our tax dollars are going to support that and our tax dollars are supporting it in a way in which it's, it's a tragedy of the commons. There's a general cost for waste disposal for the town or the city that's spread across all residents, whether or not they generate a lot of waste or not. So I think the first step is really making sure that American citizens understand uh, how costly waste is and that they are, in fact, uh, paying for it. Exactly. And it's not always us. It's We're paying for it, of course, the cost of it. But then also sometimes we're exporting that waste. And for people that really, you know, that's really sad to see those islands of waste. And it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. But even in that situation, we're still paying. If America exports garbage to another country, now that's an environmental disaster for that other country. But Americans should understand that that garbage didn't get exported for free. Our tax dollars were still used to collect it, put it on a boat and ship it someplace and have it create an environmental hazard for another country. So however you look at it, it it costs money. And your work and commitment to sustainability have been recognized by the Earth Day uh, New York. You've been named champion of the earth by the United Nations Environment Program and other honors. Uh, You're also deputy commissioner of sanitation, recycling and sustainability, as you say, in in New York City in the Bloomberg administration. You know, all these experiences and um, insights that you have, you know, what are some of the solutions today that you're most excited about uh, tackling some of these problems? Sure. Some of the solutions I'm most excited about is a company that we have in our portfolio called Home Biogas. It's the first household size anaerobic digester. Anaerobic digesters convert food waste into uh, energy. And so you can take a home biogas system, put it in your backyard. It's like an appliance for your home. 
put all of your food waste into it and it converts it into gas for your home stove or for your hot water heater or for your barbecue. And that's a solution that we're very excited about because it shows that we can manage our own waste on site and it's actually a valuable resource. And it also cuts down on our need to import gas or, or energy into our home. So home biogas is a solution we're very excited about. I would say another solution we're very excited about is a company called Algramo. It's A-L-G-R-A-M-O. And Algramo is in the reuse space. So you uh, get your reusable Algramo container. It has a chip embedded in it that's connected to your phone. And you can use that container to go to a Walmart that has a Algramo machine and put your container in the Algramo machine and buy as much or as little of that cleaning product or home product as, as you need. And so it's a product that provides the flexibility to the consumer to pay for as much as little as that they need without any packaging. So we're really excited about our grandma as well. Those are wonderful because it's, you know, it, we all, we're all aware of that, both the, the bio waste and, and the food waste. So it's great to have these solutions that are, uh, achievable and they are in progress and but with plastics it's just it, it's very difficult even when you're aware when there aren't those market-based solutions what can we do to create a circular economy for plastics well the first thing is to start with the recognition that unless a plastic has value in the recycling stream and there are some plastics that have a lot of value so like PET, which is for your beverage container, HDPE, which is laundry and cleaning products, they actually have a lot of value in the recycling system. So recognize that some plastics have value, some plastics don't. The plastics that do have value, we need to make sure that there's the infrastructure in place to get them collected and get them back into uh, products. And the plastics that don't have value, I think that we need to tell the producers if you can't invest in building markets for this plastic, then you need to stop using it because otherwise it's just creating an environmental hazard that's too expensive for society. I think all of this gets down to you know, who's going to pay? Who is going to pay? If you put a product into the market that's not recyclable or into a market that doesn't have recycling infrastructure, there's a cost to that that somebody has to pay. And I think the sooner we get down to who's going to be responsible for it, the sooner we'll see that nobody wants to raise their hand, the sooner we'll get to a place where people just say, you know what, let's find an alternative or stop using it because nobody wants to pay to handle it. As opposed to what happens today, which is the cost is passed off to, to the taxpayer in many cases, or even worse, it ends up in our oceans. Exactly. I mean, I find we work, you know, with many, you know, over 70 universities and working with a lot of young people, but just people in general. And, and there's a huge need for for people to change their consumer habits, but they're not getting the solutions there. I would love for us to just rethink our grocery systems and just I mean, I think that consumer loyalty is a big thing and people want to, you know, be reusing their containers. Um, but when they're not given those options, it's very difficult. But I love that some of those and Al Gramo, and I would love to see more of that on a, like a huge scale. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, Home Biogas, Al Gramo, we have a number of companies that can make things much more convenient for people while helping them live a much more sustainable, sustainable life. Today, we do the reverse. We make it easy for people not to be sustainable, just throw everything out and it gets picked up. 
and the cost gets spread around and we need to reverse that. We need to make it more convenient to be sustainable and more inconvenient not to be sustainable and, and more expensive. I was just reading something that the carbon dioxide that we have, human caused emissions of carbon dioxide, if we were just to stop them, we would still have this atmospheric warming and sea level rise would continue for more than a thousand years. I just, I, I just don't understand if you were to stop it and it would still continue. Does a closed loop, is it closed loop addressing any of those issues or it's more along the lines of waste? Well, we're very focused on on climate change and the risks of greenhouse gas emissions. If you look at open air landfills in emerging markets, I think they represent something like three, something like the third largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So we view manufacturing and the handling of waste as critical to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. That statistic that you're referring to in terms of if we got rid of all emissions today, it literally wouldn't have an effect for dozens of years. I, I haven't seen that. That doesn't make sense to me. I think that if you could succeed, see a, a significant reduction today, you would start seeing some beneficial results today. There are some, there's some long-term damage that's going to take years to, to heal, but there are some definite short-term things that we can do. Yeah, it didn't make sense to me either. I think uh, Susan Solomon at MIT and some others have, I think that it's just residual effects. I mean, obviously, because I don't want to make any kind of argument for just doing nothing because that's so defeated. So I, I love the the positive solutions. You know, and tell us a little bit about how you work, you work with some of the, you know, biggest companies in, in America and, or I, I'm not sure how it worked there they're involved in, in closed loop. Just how does that work? And how did you, you know, expand it in such a way? And do you, would you like to expand it further afield into to Europe? So those companies are investors in our funds. And those are companies that see the opportunity to go circular, but they need to see the innovation be spurred and they need to see the infrastructure get built. And that's a lot of what they use our, the investments in our funds to do is to uh, spur that innovation. Yeah, what do you imagine is possible in the next five to 10 years? Like, what are you focusing on? What, you know, what do you think you will be able to achieve? Well, I think we can achieve a lot in the next five years in terms of scaling our portfolio. And our portfolio has a group of companies that can have a lot of impact. But I also don't want to oversell our impact. I mean, we're just one firm working really hard to have an impact. I think there's a number of areas where we need to see change. I think if Biden's infrastructure plan can focus on recycling and circular economy as infrastructure, I think that that would be a really good start to having to have something that be, would be a major impact over the next five years. Yes. And how do you, yeah, how, what do you, yeah, what are you hopeful for? And how do you work with, you know, the political system in terms of driving that, driving markets and driving change? the first thing we do is try to make sure that there's a fair playing field. So this concept that virgin plastic is going to get a bunch of subsidies, but not recycled plastic. So we try to make sure that at least there's a uh, level playing field when it comes to government interaction. And then if possible, have you know, the government view what companies do for society that's beneficial for society as uh, worthy of getting some advantages and tax credits or, or subsidies. We've been a lot, very successful in a lot of areas. That's not one of them to date. Uh, in a sense, that's okay. I think as an investment firm, you never want to rely on 
on government subsidies, but just as a overall statement on society and government's role in society, I think government could do a much better job of supporting businesses and industries that are better aligned with the interest of its of its citizenry. And we've seen, you know, really hopeful things like, I mean, even in, you know, Germany is quite uh, progressive. It has been with, you know, their Green Party and everything. But we see recently young people taking the high court and winning the case that climate security is a human right. And do you think that that's something that can happen? And we can see things are happening now in America, which I'm so happy about. But do you think that 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 could happen in America? Yes, not not it'll be a little bit different than what the European version of that looks like. But I think that there's definitely a, a lot of movement now at the federal level and at the state level and at the local level. It's not going to be everywhere in the United States unless the federal government does it. But I think there's a lot of movement on the policy side that's it's getting closer to what uh, Europe is doing. And you spoke a little bit before about like, your mother being a teacher or the important, you know, people who had, you know, influenced you, um, the importance of education about all these issues. What are your thoughts on that? And how can we really incorporate sustainable thinking and education about this circular economy into our very earliest education? Well, to the very earliest education, I think that it has to do with getting out of the classroom and getting into nature and having kids experience and enjoy and appreciate and learn about nature. I think that that's something that's very important and really needs to happen. And then from there, it goes to the careers that are available for people and how they're trained for their careers. If they're trained for their careers with a sense of sustainability worked into that, that's going to be really good. If they're trained the way they've been traditionally trained, where that's not a part of their training, they're not going to really know how to apply those principles. Yeah, because it's a real opportunity, as I understand, one for like taking on so many levels, you know, for taking back, and I know you're involved also with Earth Day and Kathleen Rogers, and just taking back, you know, control of our energy systems, not outsourcing everything and having, you know, just a a new crop of jobs that are really, um, you know, well-paying and, you know, satisfying and, and, and interesting. It's, it's always been billed as a sacrifice, you know, but I think that there's so much opportunity there, as you know. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity and, and that word opportunity, that, that's a really important word is that I think traditionally people have thought, well, if I go into that space, I'm going to struggle financially, you know, I'll be doing good for the world. And I think we need to reverse that actually in, in the self-interest of the movement and, and just, tying into people's own self-interest is they need to view uh, sustainable living and bring sustainability into their profession as in their own you know, self-interest and, and benefit. It's also kind of, you know, when the planet is in balance and when you've been able to, you know, see uh, a healthy ecosystem at work, there's this, this uh, happiness quotient. We're, we've been always in America and all over the world, frankly, but there's this um, push towards GDP, but it doesn't take into account this sense of happiness and well-being. And I think that when you're, when you're in an environment that's healthy, you feel it and you know it. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that our concept of GDP, which is something I cover in in, in the book, The Waste-Free World, is, is not an economic metric we should be using as the core evaluator of 
the success of the economy. GDP, while an interesting economic metric, it measures how much we made, how much we sold, what we sold it for. It doesn't measure, did our schools get better? Is our air clean? Is our water drinkable? Are our communities safe? All of those things can actually go be going in the negative direction while GDP is going up. And what government or big bank economists will tell us is that, hey, we had a good year last year. It's like, I... I don't feel that in my own life. And that's, I think, a lot of the disassociation that a lot of people feel in, in the United States and some parts of Europe is they're hearing that the economy is doing well and they see some people getting very rich, but their lives are actually getting worse. And if we don't solve for that by using metrics like clean air, good schools, access to health care, safe communities. If we don't use those as the metrics of a successful economy, I think we're sowing the seeds for a lot of discontent and understandably so. You know, uh, you were talking about the importance of, you know, bringing uh, young people out of the classroom to really appreciate, you know, the environment, the natural world uh, and what we're doing to it. So what were some of those formative uh, memories uh, for you? You know, what aspects of the natural world do you want to preserve for future generations for your children? Well, for me, it was the first part of my life. I uh, grew up in Israel and always went to the beach and just had a great appreciation for the ocean and its beauty and its calmness. And then you started hearing about like, plastic in the water and not being clean enough to swim and animals dying because they're getting wrapped up in plastic. And that's probably the first thing that really hit home to me is like, this beach is so beautiful. It's so amazing. And the ocean is just so wonderful. How, how could we be harming it? And so I, I think just the natural world is where we come from. You know, we, we, we live in buildings and cities because that's what generates uh, a living for a lot of people. But where we're most comfortable as, as humans is when we're in nature. And, and I think getting children, and this is the hard part about the income gap is, you know, can you get lower income children to have this experience as well? But I think if you can get children involved in discovering and appreciating and interacting with nature, that can change a lot of how they view things later on when they're business people and or in government and making decisions. Exactly. So few have that experience. My husband grew up on a farm in Ireland and uh, I, I didn't have that, but I did experience some of the natural world. And But without that understanding, how can you really even understand the circular economy? That it's, it, it's tough. That's why you, know, you look at some of the poverty around the world and people grow up without ever seeing a tree or without ever seeing, you know, clean water. And that's a disaster. We need to get back to a place where even if someone may not have a lot of disposable income, they still have nature around them to run around in, appreciate, breathe in, relax in. And it would just, I think, give all of us from an early age a much greater appreciation of how lucky we are to have what we have. Yes, I was speaking with Martin von Hildebrand the other day. We were, of course, he's been advocating for the indigenous people of the Amazon in Colombia for over 50 years. And their whole worldview and how they respect the forest. I mean, I, I don't expect everyone to have that experience. I've never had that. I mean, it, it's just 
kind of breathtaking to think of it. But one thing is it's a philosophical difference. And he says that the indigenous people view the, we, we, we in this contemporary world view nature as objects for us to use, but they see it as a, a subject that they are among and, and that they're, they're all equal and, and none of it belongs to them. And mm -hmm. um, I would love for everyone to have that same view and experience. I, I know that's it, it would go a long way, I think, to helping us all agree that this is something that we should, we should protect and benefit from. Yes, the, the, the beauty of nature, as you say, I think it, it will increase, as you say, the, the global happiness quotient. So I guess in closing, you know, as you think about the future and the climate crises and education and technology and the kind of world we're leaving for future generations, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Your generation owns this. Don't let anybody take it from you or damage it because you own it. Your next, the next generation is the one that, that owns it and view it with a sense of ownership and a sense of pride and a sense of protection because there's a lot of benefits you get from nature. You get wind and sun that can give you a lot of energy. You get delicious foods. You get wonderful areas to walk around and hike in and beaches to go swim in. It's yours. But you need to protect it uh, or you won't have it and, and you will have, have lost out. So that would be my message. Well, it's a beautiful message and you've, and I hope that everyone, because it's really so informative, uh, read your book, uh, Waste Free World, because it's full of practical information and it shows that there's a place for all, each of us in this waste-free, sustainable uh, economy of the future, but we have to work for it. It is a responsibility. Uh, there's nothing guaranteed about the future, so we really have to, you know, respect. You know, I was walking today in, in, the, in the park and I was saying, what what a, what a paradise we live in, actually. And it's not in the next world. I feel we have it here, but we have to make sure we preserve it. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. And Thanks. thank you, Ron Gonin and Closed Loop Partners, for all you are doing to help bring about transformative change, rethink capitalism for a circular economy, and move towards a waste-free world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your commitment to make it a better place for future generations. Uh, thank you. Uh, glad to be with you today. You have Great. a good rest of your day. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate broadcast producer on this podcast was Peter Uba. Digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written by and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.